Good morning, everybody. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me during the Christmas holiday. I, I know that there's all kinds of stuff going on, and uh, we're all busy with, uh, I hope we're all busy with holiday greetings in our family. Seems like some families don't ever get together except this time of year. And uh, the last thing that some families find around the Christmas dinner table is peace and joy. Uh, but you know, you can be the instrument of peace uh, at times of family gatherings. And some of our families desperately need to, uh, to have peace sewn into them. Well, I, like I said, I'm delighted to be here. I, I trust that when you came in that you got some literature. I don't know if you did or not, but we'll make sure that you do when you go out. But that just tell, it'll give you a little idea about who we are and, uh, and what we do and, and who we're connected with and that sort of thing. And I think that's important because uh, if we're going to receive teaching from someone, there needs to be an understanding of who they are, where they come from. Paul and the other apostles in the New Testament had the habit of sending letters of recommendation and not just allowing anybody to get up and expound their particular view of godly things. So that'll let you know just a little bit about that. About two and a half years ago now, I had the great privilege of meeting uh, Jerry Curry in Waverly and then through Jerry meeting Glenn and others. And as we talked more, we found out that we were connected to the same people as far back as 40 years ago. And so it was kind of interesting to uh, see all the connections that the Lord had already brought together. My wife and I, Linda, is not here this morning because she's on grandbaby watch. We're, uh, we're within days, maybe today, of uh, our ninth grandchild. And so she's there with our youngest daughter and husband, and this will be their second second child and we've got a uh, I probably shouldn't even say this but we got a we always have a family pot going about you know when the baby will be born the exact hour and minute and how big and how long labor and hair or no hair and eyes or no eyes you know that sort of thing and uh, that's a pretty good bet there you can you know do but um Anyway, I, I got a phone call last night, and Linda said, my wife Linda said, Amanda told me to not tell you, uh, but she started having contractions, and she doesn't want you to come back yet and miss tomorrow morning, this morning. Well, about two hours later, she called me back and said, it was a false alarm, so you don't have to worry about that. But I will be leaving uh, just a few minutes after the service uh, which should be done by around 3, 3.30. And uh, <clears throat> I battle having a dry mouth because I speak so much, and so I usually put a little mint in the side of my mouth, you know, to keep it moist while I'm talking. And I'm reminded of the guy that said that that's what he did. And then one Sunday he got up and he was preaching, and he kept on preaching, and he kept on preaching, kept on preaching, Finally realized he'd actually pulled a button off of his suit coat, put it in his mouth, and that thing had not melted, you know. He was timing himself, and it just wasn't going to work. But Linda and I pastored. We were just little hippie kids back in the late 60s who came to know Jesus at the beginning of the hippie movement, the, or the Jesus movement. 
And uh, so that's where we made our beginning very quickly. Uh, we got related with some great teachers who gave us a good foundation. And then as the years went by, uh, our hair got shorter and shorter and then began to fall out. This is quite an embarrassment for an old hippie right there. But uh, Linda and I gave up pastoring our last church in 1992 and went through a period of time where the Lord really revealed himself to us in a really new uh, and different way. And I have books that tell about that experience. But in 97, uh, we, were, we were deeply moved to give up our home and virtually everything that we owned and just spend the rest of our lives traveling the world and sowing into primarily young leaders. I'm 68 at this point in my life, and I recognize well that most of my life has already been lived in this context of life. And so we're spending all the time that we have to try to sow into the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. So as we travel around the world and speaking primarily to young leaders and doing pastor's conferences, and of course, old people are invited too, but typically we're trying to sow in and build a library of videos and audios and printed material uh, that anybody can find on our, on our website. But the main core of what we teach when we travel around is what I would like to just touch on this morning. And that is an understanding that before the beginning, as we understand Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, before that, God had a plan. And that plan was birthed out of the familyness of the one God. And what God wanted was to have a family that extended to every nation, kindred, and tongue. When Jesus comes on the scene, Galatians 4 says, when the time was exactly right on God's calendar, he sent his son. But when Jesus came into the world, God's people, and I put that in quotes, but God's people, the Jews, were living in what historians referred to as the second temple time. The first temple, of course, was Solomon's temple. But that temple was destroyed. Then years later, when you get to the time of Nehemiah and Ezra, and they rebuilt the temple, that temple was very inferior in quality and in materials to the original temple that Solomon had built. Now that temple was added to and expanded on some by the Jews, some by Herods that ruled Gentile rulers who were in the area. But by the time Jesus comes, the original idea that people celebrated in Solomon's day in the new built temple had really lost its way. And the promise that God made to Abraham had begun to be interpreted as, I am going to give you many genetic children that will number more than the stars or the sands uh, on the beach. But that was not the original promise. The original promise was not, I'm going to give you a genetically unique and separate group of people, Jews, uh, eventually called that. Uh, that was not the original promise. The original promise was that through Abraham, God was going to reach into every nation, every kindred, every tribe, every tongue. And of course, we, we see the fulfillment of that 
when we go to the book of Revelation, it says John looked and he saw a number that no man could number from every kindred, every tongue, every nation, that God wanted to use Israel as a light to the nations. But by the time Jesus shows up, they had gone, begun to be so inbred that they, they were disgusted about all of the other nations. And rather than being a light to the other nations to lead them to know the true God, most of the Jews of Jesus' day actually withdrew from as much Gentile society as they possibly could. Of course, we find throughout the gospel story about Jesus' earthly ministry where he reached out to people that the Jews of his day considered unclean. Whether they were Jews who had done things that made them unclean or whether they were Samaritans who for hundreds of years had been half-breed Jews so they were not accepted. But we find that Jesus comes and he begins to treat everybody equally. All are under sin, but all are deeply loved by God. And of course, it bothered the Pharisees of Jesus' day to hear him say things like a verse that we are all so very familiar with, John 3, 16. God loves the world so much. That was not the message that the second temple Jews of Jesus' day wanted to hear. It carried on further when the Apostle Paul began to go into Gentile areas and preach the gospel. And it infuriated the Jews because the Apostle Paul brought a message that says, God loves the whole world and everybody in it. And the salvation that God has brought through the death, resurrection, ascension of Christ and the sending of the Spirit is not for the Jew only, but for any whosoever will call upon his name. Now that was not a welcome message. And we see in the life of Paul how many times he was beaten and, 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 and starved and imprisoned because he believed that God's heart from the very beginning was for all people. Yet at the same time he said, I honor my own kindred. Through them came the law. Through them came the prophets. Through them eventually came the Messiah. But the coming of the Messiah was not for Jew only. But the coming of the Messiah was to implement God's plan from the very beginning. And Glenn already mentioned it just a few moments ago. And that was the introduction of God. Not as an angry judge who is far off but watching our every moment. But a God who says, I am Emmanuel. I want to be with you. I want to be with you. That what my intention was from the very beginning was to build a family who bore my name. And a family who would image me to those who do not yet know me. It's wonderful to go through the New Testament and see how many times the Greek word for icon appears. But the numerous places that it appears, it always refers to the fact that you and I have been called to be image bearers of the Christ. So that when people looked at us, the way we act, the way we behave, the way we speak, the things that we value, would bear the God's most intimate desire when he began this act of creation. It's described in what, to me, for me anyway, has become 
Maybe the single most important little bitty word in the Bible. And that word is the word in. I-N. In fact, you can simply sum up the difference between living in the law and living in Christ by the word on and the word in. In the Old Covenant, God wrote His laws on stone. But in the New Covenant, there is a miraculous transformation where the lawgiver comes to live in people. God's desires were written on stone in the Old Covenant. But in the New Covenant, the heart of God Himself comes to live inside of any who would receive Him. It changes everything. It changes the perspective of everything. The instructions that God wanted us to follow had been chiseled into stone. But now under the new covenant, the instructor himself has come to live inside of people. This was a message that the second temple Jews utterly could not receive. Even his own disciples, though he spoke about it openly and often, which ultimately is what stirred the Pharisees to the point of actually getting him killed. But he spoke about it often, but there was never a time in the gospel story where he spoke about this issue more than the night before he was crucified. We refer to it as the Last Supper. So I want you to open your Bibles and go to John chapter 14. Now, I, the book of John is different. When you uh, get into any academic study or scholarly study of the Scriptures, you know that the, uh, the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are referred to as the synoptic Gospels. They all carry the basic format. They tell the story of the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. But in John's Gospel, which was written many, many years after the original other three, John takes a completely different uh, uh, method of recording the story that he was inspired to write down for our behalf. What he does is, in the book of John, we have uh, 22 chapters. Now, you know, of course, that uh, the Bible was not originally written in chapters and verse. Uh, when John wrote the book of John, he did not write chapter 1, verse 1, but he wrote a letter. Somewhere in the 1200s, the Middle Ages, monks hiding out somewhere, making copies of the Scripture, began to add chapters and verse. And it's good, primarily it's good, because I can say turn to John 14 and you know where to turn. If it wasn't divided up that way, I would have to say, okay, open your Bibles to somewhere near the middle of the first letter from John and keep turning the pages until you find these words. That would be a lot more difficult. However, we need to remember that though it does help us that the Bible is divided up into chapters and verse, we need to remember that frequently sentences, thoughts, or context don't end when there's a period, or they don't end when you come to the end of a chapter. So when you read the book of John, John has what we've divided up into as 22 chapters in his book or his letter, but in the first 12, 1 through 12, about half, John covers the whole life and ministry of Jesus. 
in the first half of his letter, his gospel. By the time we get to John 12, we are now at the last week of Jesus' earthly life. When we start John 13, we start by going into the upper room. We call it the upper room. They actually call it the upstairs banquet hall of John Mark's mom and dad's house. It's just easier to say upper room. And we call it the Last Supper. It's not really mentioned as the Last Supper. But it sounds more spiritual than to say, well, you know, it was a time where they ate just before the death. And then when they ate, they talked, you know. By the way, there is something mentioned in the scripture or something that's, that, that we know is true. But it's not in the Bible. But yet it is true, obviously. And that is that somewhere during that night, that evening, in that upstairs banquet hall, Jesus said to his disciples, look, if you all want to get in the painting, you're going to have to all sit on this side of the table. Now, some of you will get that on the way home and you'll start laughing and you'll, yeah. So, <laughs> sorry. If my wife was here, she'd smack me for telling that. But she's not here, so I'm going to keep on going. So, one of the, one of the things that in, in my own personal study over the past now 20 years, because uh, something very dramatic happened to me 20 years ago, 21 years ago, that changed my understanding of what we're talking about today in a very radical way after planting and pastoring churches for 25 years. But when I read the last chapters of John or the last half 13 14 15 16 17 one of the things that captures my imagination my fascination there is that those chapters those five chapters 13 14 15 16 17 they all take place in the upper room or in John 17 short walk down the block to the garden where they pray John 17 is the prayer of Jesus but those five chapters, John took five pretty long chapters to give us a detailed explanation of what went on in that room just hours before Jesus was arrested, then beaten through the night, finally crucified. And in the midst of this, it becomes very important to realize Jesus knew these were the last things he was going to be able to say to his men before he was crucified. So what he said to those guys. I mean if you knew. That tomorrow at lunch you would be dead. What you would say to your family and your friends. Would be far more important. Than what we might normally have as a conversation on any other day. This was essentially it. Before the crucifixion. And what Jesus said that night. Fortunately, the Holy Spirit inspired especially John to remember that conversation and to write it down for us because Jesus was bringing everything that he had taught for almost three and a half years all together and summing up what he had taught all that time to these guys. And even then, after almost three and a half years, they missed the whole point. Fortunately, after Jesus returned to the Father, he sent the Spirit to remind them, Jesus said, of the things that I have taught you. But as they sat around the table, understand the situation that we're looking at. We're looking at 12 men who were full-blood Jews. 
They'd been born in or around Jerusalem, so they had regular access to the temple. Many Jews had already been dispersed in what's referred to as the diaspora, and they were in other countries. Many of them never, ever were able to come to Jerusalem and be in the temple, which was the heart of every Jew. But these men were born in or around Jerusalem, and they could easily make the trip into Jerusalem to be in the temple itself. And they were there with Jesus on several occasions. But the things that he talked about, about the kingdom of God, when he turned and said to them at one point, when you hear someone say, the kingdom of God is over here, or the kingdom of God is over there, I want you to remember these words, the kingdom is in you. Now we read that, and it excites us, it thrills us, we feel good about that. But those men could not comprehend of th this. One of the things that they found exceedingly strange about Jesus was the intimate way that he prayed to the Father. Now if you know anything about Judaism, you know that good Jews have prayers for everything. Everything. They know exactly what they're supposed to pray when they wake up in the morning, when they do their morning washing. They know exactly what they're supposed to pray when they sit down for the breakfast meal and for the noon meal. And they know exactly what to say. They've been taught this by rote. They've memorized it. They all know what to do. And yet at one day during the three and a half years of ministry of Jesus, they say to Jesus, Master, would you teach us how to pray? Now, at first glance, when you think about it, that's kind of bizarre. Rabbis had been teaching them how to pray their whole lives. They were forced to memorize the prayers, and they knew exactly when and where they were supposed to pray and exactly what. But they hear Jesus pray, and it kind of boggles their mind. And what we find out is that when Jesus prayed, he prayed with an intimacy with God that they didn't have a clue about. And of course, when Jesus prayed, he prayed to my Father. Well, that alone was bizarre because no good Jew called God Father. When you read the Old Testament, you don't have anybody referring to God as their individual Father. Even in David, as, as intimate as David seemed to be with God, it was always the understanding that He was the Creator and the Judge. And he was far off. But when Jesus came, one of the prophetic statements which we've talked about is the fact that one of his names would be Emmanuel. Where the God that they viewed as being far off, real but far off, was going to try to communicate to them that he wasn't far off. And that what he actually wanted was an intimacy with any who would rely upon him in faith. So that they would refer to him as Father. So when they asked him how to pray, Jesus said, well, this is the way you pray. And right off the bat, he starts out with what? Our Father. Our Father. These were words that these men had not used before to refer to God because God was the terrifying God. God was the one who spoke and the ground opened up and swallowed lots of people all at one time. And this was a scary God. And in the second temple especially, the rabbinical teachers were terrified that Greek culture was going to so invade Judaism that they would lose all identity. They not only took Moses' original Big Ten and added hundreds more to it, 
to try to ensure that the Jewish people would not be corrupted by society around them. Jesus came and the way he talked about God and talked to God was radically different. He knew him in a very different way, but he taught us. In places like on the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus again makes statements that were very, very uncomfortable for the Jews. When he said, look at the birds and look at the flowers. See how God takes care of them. Don't you know that you are more valuable to your Father than any of these? That our faith would depend on the belief that God considered us valuable to Him. That that's the way God felt. Well, that was... That was radically unknown to Second Temple Jews. What had been so intimate for Moses coming into the literal manifested presence of God was completely unknown when Jesus came onto the earth. In the Second Temple Jews, they had no concept of God literally manifesting himself in a way that human beings with their senses could detect his presence, know his presence. They didn't look at the temple and see a cloud anymore. They didn't look at the temple and see a pillar of fire any longer. But by the time Jesus shows up on the scene, Judaism had lost their entire concept of intimacy with God. In fact, it had gotten so bad that they actually had what they would refer to as the unspeakable name of God. The unspeakable name of God. They could write it, but no one would say it. It is interesting today that lots of people say it a lot. It's Yahweh. But the way it's written in Hebrew, since there are no vowels in Hebrew, it's written, transliterated into English, Y-H-W-H. Now, that was the unspeakable name of God. God was so holy you couldn't even say that name. Of course, today there are certain groups that tell us that if we do not use the word Yahweh, we're in sin. That we're not speaking to God correctly unless we refer to Him as Yahweh. Here's what I find humorous about that. Somebody arbitrarily added vowels to Y-H-W-H. They added vowels so that it comes out as Yahweh. You could just as easily add two E's in there and it would be Yee-Wee. <laughs> and yet people will fight you to the death today if you don't use the word Yahweh. And of course Jesus comes on the scene, on the scene to show them that that's not the issue. The issue is having an intimate relationship with the God who spoke and the world left, in, uh, left into being. That this God did all of that so that he could actually have a family. Not a terrified nation, but a family. But how do you do that? How does the almighty, omnipotent, omniscient God, how does he create a family out of well, I mean, let's be honest. What essentially is a bunch of walking, talking piles of dirt. I mean, <laughs> he creates all that is and then he scoops up a little bit of the dirt and, and all of a sudden it's Adam. And these bodies will return to that. 
But our spirits will live on because God breathed it into us from the very beginning. But how does the God, who is all that he is, somehow actually have a real family? How is that going to happen? And this is what the second temple first century Jews could not wrap their brain around. They accused Jesus of blaspheming because he was overly familiar in the way he spoke to God and about God. And for that overly familiar relationship, they hated him. And yet the poor and the broken and the sinners came flocking to him because they heard in this familiarity that he had with his father that they might also be able to have that. But how is that going to happen? Well, in the new covenant, that is going to happen by a fulfillment of prophecy that was given in one form or another by virtually every Old Testament prophet. Now we come up to this night, the night where they eat this last meal together. John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. All of that talks about that conversation. I'm already running out of time, so we're not going to cover every verse in those five chapters. But we are going to take a look right in the middle of the conversation. In John 14... I'm going to begin reading in verse 15 because it's a more well-known passage. And a total transparency here. I used to read John 14 and, uh, and verse 15 and uh, didn't like it at all because of the way I interpret it. And that's where Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The reason I didn't like that verse was because I interpreted that to be a threat. I envision Jesus saying to those guys after being with them for three and a half years, look guys, if you love me, you better behave right. You better obey me. Or another way that you could look at it is, if you love me, you prove it by the level of your obedience. How many know the dilemma there? Every time we miss the mark of Christ's absolute perfection, we've sinned. But I thought I loved you. But apparently I don't because I didn't obey that commandment. But I thought I loved you. I felt like I loved you. But I guess not. But you see, I want to just drop a thought on your mind to take home. Jesus was not giving a commandment or a threat or a declaration but he in fact like a good doctor was giving a promise when you go to a good doctor and you have an infection that's breaking down your body the doctor gets medicine for you and he says if you will take this medicine you will get well and Jesus is saying something amazing to me in this passage when he says if you love me that act of loving me will enable you, little by little, more every day to do what? To obey you. To keep his commandments. To obey him as he leads us in our life. There's something miraculous about loving God back. I say back because John makes it very clear in his epistles later on that we love God because of something. 
What is it because of? We love God because He first loved us. You see, God made us to be responders. And we will either respond to the Spirit in the world, or we will get an ever-growing revelation of God's love for us, and we will respond by loving Him back. So Jesus, understanding that, said, Look, guys, for three and a half years we've talked about this, and you still haven't got it, and that's okay, I understand. But just before this thing wraps up in my earthly body, I want to say it again. If you love me, that act of loving me will empower you to do something that you were never able to do before. And that is, it will empower you to love me. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on and he gives us an understanding of what Peter, Paul both write that all the prophets spoke about. All the prophets, including Moses, spoke in one way or another about a new covenant that was coming. And I must confess to you that in the first 25 years of my ministry, I did not understand the extremely important difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. I really, really, really like anything that you cook that was part of a pig. And so I really, really didn't want to be Orthodox Jewish because bacon's not on the menu, but everything goes better with bacon, even chocolate. But I didn't understand the radical difference, and I, I couldn't comprehend why it was so difficult for these men to comprehend what was going to change through the death, resurrection, ascension back to the Father, and the sending of the Spirit, the introduction of the new covenant. I was just as confused as they were. But I will say now that I do believe that in the following verses, after verse 15, these guys who had been taught all their lives what Jeremiah prophesied, what Isaiah prophesied, what Ezekiel prophesied, what Moses prophesied, that something must have begun to click when Jesus makes this statement in John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another Helper. Well, there's an interesting promise right there. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I see that as now a promise. And the reason I see it as a promise is because of the next line. What does he promise us? He's going to give us a what? A helper. To help us do what? Keep his commandments. Do his will. Love him back. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on and he makes a statement that these men who had been taught all their lives the writings of the old prophets, had, something had to click inside of them. When he goes on to say this, I'll ask the Father, He will give you another helper, that He will be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him. Now listen to these words. But you know Him because He has been with you. But he will be, what's the next word? In. in you. And at that moment, 
I have to believe that these guys who had been taught Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Moses, all of their lives, that something clicked inside of their brain, if not their brain, at least their heart, must have begun to raise its eyes with an expectation of something happening soon to them that they would never have believed could happen before them. That the God who throughout their Old Testament had been with people, See, we find David praying a prayer in Psalm 51 like, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. And yet Jesus comes on the scene and he says, in the new covenant, the Holy Spirit will abide with you forever. But that's not the way David thought. That's not the way Moses thought. Because under the old covenant, God would come and be with someone for a specific purpose. And then his manifested presence would withdraw. God would come and be with Gideon to do what he needed to do. But then he was gone. God came with David, with Joshua, with Moses. And, and these Jewish men understood that. But this little word in, in you, in you, in you, this was mind-boggling. I mean, how can the God who spoke and the worlds leapt into being? And not only leapt into being, but by every scientific fact that we can even wrap our brains a little bit around, it's continuing to grow, the universe continuing to expand, continuing to be created because God spoke and it just keeps on and on and on. One day after we pass out of this life, we're going to understand what all that is and we're going to have a part of the government of doing that. Isn't that a cool thing? I'm not ready for that yet, but soon. But when he said, you know him because he has been with you, but he shall be in you. This changes everything. The whole game changes. This changes everything. Nothing else has to be said except God wants to come and live in you. Amen. He wants to come and live in you. And when you by faith receive him, he will be with you forever. He shall not come and go. God doesn't visit us in the new covenant. He said, well, yeah, but I feel him at times more than I do others. Yeah, that's our awareness. Rather than begging God to give us an open heaven, we ought to be asking God to make us more aware of who is living inside of us. This was the message that God, Paul, killed because he dare suggest, no, not suggest, but declare as an absolute eternal truth that the God who made all that is wants to make you a member of his family. How's he going to do that? By coming and putting himself by his spirit in you. And then living his life through you. That he would come in and live through. He would come in and live through. He would come in. In and live through. Man, when you travel into countries that have had little, if any, exposure to Christianity, and you begin to teach that the Christ has come so that God's Spirit could come and live inside of you, and they don't have anything to unlearn, it is incredible how fast they grow to mature faith. It is incredible. We're in the middle of something right now that uh, I just, I, I, uh, I never in all my years did I ever think that we would play some small part in this. 
But two years ago, the governing body of Vietnam made a major change. It was not documented in most of our news coverage. We were not really aware of it on this side of the globe. But it was right at the same time that Donald Trump was elected president. Now, I don't care whether you voted for him or not. That's not what I'm trying to get at. But two years ago, a little more than that, two and a half years ago, when there was a change in Vietnam's government in the upper levels of the guys, still communists, still all that, but just different people, they reached out to the administration privately and said that they wanted to have better trade relationships with the United States. The administration responded by saying, if you want better trade and you want us to lower the tariffs on the stuff that you try to put over here to sell, the first thing you have to do is you have to improve your human rights record. You have a terrible way of treating people who disagree with you. And you're going to have to change that if you're going to want better trade relationships with us. And the first thing you can do to start is stop persecuting the Christian church. And in one day, over 3,000 imprisoned Christians were released in Vietnam. Amen. Today, right now, what two years ago was the underground church, and you had to sneak around. And when you met in somebody's apartment, and you worshipped and you sang, now this is what they had to do. They couldn't clap. But their hearts wanted them to clap, so they all did this. And in their hearts, they were making a joyful noise, but they were whispering their songs, lest their neighbors hear them and turn them in. Now, those same groups are renting storefronts and meeting out in the open without any fear, at least right now, of being arrested so they contacted us and they said somebody gave us some English copies of the New Covenant discipleship workbook that you had written called rock solid and we would like to know if you can help us this was just within the last four weeks so they begun sending me emails saying if you could get this to us so that we could have all of our church leaders studying this and using it to train their people. It would, it would be a thrilling thing for us because we have almost nothing in our own language that really deals with the miracle of the new covenant, Christ living in us and living through us. Well, four years ago, the first language that I decided to get this translated, and I honestly do not know why, I can tell you of no big spiritual revelation, but the first one we paid to get translated was Vietnamese. So we already had it translated. And I'm getting ready to go over there with a team of teachers to take, starting out, 4,000 of these in Vietnamese to train 4,000 leaders who represent dozens of church groups throughout the country, north and south. And we don't have to hide anymore. But the miracle that is changing them isn't... Uh, how can I say this? It, the miracle that's changing people in these areas is not Jesus will forgive your sin. That's not the miracle that changes them. Forgiveness is great. Thank God for it. Every moment of every day. Absolutely. But you know, Jesus tried to let us know that as important forgiveness is, forgiveness alone does not change who and what a human being is. You say, wait a minute, Mark. I thought Jesus died for us. He did. He did. He did. But being forgiven by itself. Now let me show you just one place where Jesus tried to get that through to us. And for years, I didn't see it. We all know the parable about the man who owed 
another guy a huge amount of money. And he went to him and threw himself at the mercy of the creditor. And the creditor, having mercy on him, said, I'm going to forgive your debt. You do not have to pay it back. I let you go free from your debt. You have had your debt forgiven. And then Jesus said, the man who had just been forgiven went to someone who owed him a little tiny bit of money and grabbed him around the neck and said, if you don't pay me every bit of it right now, I'm going to have you thrown in jail. Now, one lesson we should learn from that is being forgiven as awesome as it is, it does not transform the character and nature of the person. Now, if they go on in that, it will. But that alone, you understand what I'm saying? So the miracle that's transforming people like this in places where Christianity is highly unknown is the reality that the one true God wants to forgive you, show you mercy, but more than anything else, he wants to come and live in you. Now, I was hoping for a better response than that, but that's okay. I, no, I understand. You're listening, paying attention, taking notes. That's good. I understand that. But this, this idea where Jesus says to these men, you know the Spirit because He has been with you. All of your history as Jews shows that God, the one true God, has come and been with your forefathers, with your ancestors at different times. But everything's going to change now because He who used to be with His people is now going to come and live in His people. And the Apostle Paul makes this declaration in one verse that just still, after just meditating and rolling this over my head, it still excites me beyond words where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. However, I do live. However, it's not me who is living, but it is Christ who is living in me. Listen, that is, the Bible's filled with metaphors. That's not one of them. This was not a metaphor to the early church. When the Bible says, receive Christ, this was not a metaphor. This was not pray the sinner's prayer. This was surrender ownership of your life to Him, and He, by His Spirit, will literally come and inhabit you. When you read through the New Testament, there's no question that the church in Corinth had lots of carnal problems. Everything from incest to whatever you can name, Christians were doing this stuff. But twice in the first letter and once in the second letter, Paul lists things that they were doing that believers ought not do. And then he says this, have you forgotten that your body is the temple of God and that Christ lives in you? You are behaving this way because you have forgotten who's in you. You are acting like this because you have forgotten that you have been made new by the indwelling of God, by His Spirit. Let me put it in a little more modern English. God's address on the earth is you. He is, and everywhere the early church went, they spread it. It was a divine infection that spread by personal contact. Why? Because God was in them, and they literally believed it. 
And there are Bible verses that I've quoted for now almost 50 years. But now they mean something so much different. Simple little verse like where John says, For greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Romans 8, 11, For if the same Spirit which raised Christ from the dead dwell in you, He will, now I'm quoting King James, He will quicken your mortal body. The word quicken literally means put life into. Now wait a minute. He was writing to Roman believers who were already alive. So he writes and he says, If you will receive Christ then His Spirit will come and put life in you. Wait a minute. They were already alive. So it wasn't their life the Spirit was putting in them. Whose life is it? It's Christ's life in us. This was the miracle of regeneration. This was the miracle that sets Christianity, and it still sets Christianity apart from the rest of the world. You cannot join biblical Christianity. You can join a church. You can read the Bible. You can quote the golden rule. But you cannot join biblical new covenant Christianity. You can't do it. Now you can join Islam. Many of the places that we go. The predominant uh, uh, religion in the area is Islam. You can join Islam. I could become uh, a, 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 an Islam believer. I could do that. You learn the, the, the rules, the laws. You adhere to the law of the Koran. And you can join. You can join Buddhists. You can learn the eightfold path to nirvana and, and, and begin trying to work your way up that path. You can become a Hindu. And uh, Hindus are great because you've got a couple of thousand gods. You can pick anyone that kind of suits your fancy the best. And that'd be great. And you can do that. You can join all of those. But you cannot join Christianity. It requires a miracle. It requires a miracle, a miracle of you surrendering ownership of your life and he fulfilling his promise that he will come by his spirit and take up residence in your mortal body. Amen. And the more I'm aware of it, the more I realize that the presence of God is with me all the time, Amen. all the time. And then after a while, you got to be kind of careful about that, especially when you're on a fully packed airplane <laughs> and you begin to think, He's in me. The God who created it all is living inside of me. And if you meditate on that very long, your seatmates begin to lean away from you because you start to get filled with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And you realize God is not far off somewhere, but he has come to live in us and live through us. And then we get to something like Galatians 5 where Paul says, Now the fruit of the Spirit... Is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit. You know, for many years, though I would never ever say it out loud, but for many years, I thought what Paul meant was the fruit of a Christian who tries really, really hard is love, joy, peace. How many know what I'm talking about? Where you know you're supposed to manifest the nature of Jesus, which includes patience. How many of you have ever tried to be more patient? Right? Which just agitates you more. And you start getting ticked off about things that you didn't even notice before. But now you're trying to be patient. And finally your kids say, look, I don't know what's going on. But would you quit it? Because you're really hard to get along with. Shut up and leave me alone. I'm trying to be patient. Yeah, right. 
No, no. But see, you go back to that verse, and Paul makes it very clear. The fruit of the Spirit. And where did Jesus promise the Spirit is going to dwell? In us. So from the time you were born again, whether you've been aware of it or not, to whatever degree you've been aware of it, the full nature of who and what Jesus is, is inside of you. He brought himself, his love, his joy, his peace. It is in us. If we have received him as Lord over our lives, it is in us. His character, his nature. That's what that is describing. When we read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 about what love does and what it doesn't do, that agape is him, but he's living in us. And the more we cultivate the awareness that a miracle has transpired and he has come to live inside of us in a very real, literal way that is yet beyond our ability to comprehend. But Paul wraps up there in 1 Corinthians 13 talking about love and he says, right now, we only see a part of it. We only understand a part of it. But one day will come where we will know him and it as much as he knows us. That that is going to be perfected and fulfilled in our lives. I want to encourage you right now just to close your eyes for a moment. And let's just sit here just for a few, few minutes. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to begin imagining to yourself that it is actually true. That God by his spirit has come to live inside of you. By, by the way, if you are not a believer, there would be no better time than just right now. And all you need to do is just turn over the ownership of your life to him. And whether you understand what all is going to happen or next or not doesn't matter. But if you surrender the ownership of your life, a miracle is going to take place right now. If that's you, the Spirit of God is going to come, begin living inside of you. And he is going to change you from the inside out. Now Paul said the recipe for this is simple. As we meditate on him, he renews our mind. He changes the way we think. Now here's how God wants us to think. The spirit of his son is living inside of me. The spirit of his son Jesus is living inside of me. And the things that I have been trying so hard to be and do are actually already in me. I want to learn how to cooperate with the nature of Jesus that is in me. Jesus is always motivated by divine love. John says, there is no fear in love. God, I have been giving in to fear about a variety of things, but there is no fear in love. So I'm asking you to increase my awareness that divine agape love is living inside of me because that's your nature, Jesus. And you are not far away, but you are in me. There's a miracle that I do not have words to describe, Lord, that you have come to live inside of me. Increase my awareness that you do not come and go, you do not visit me, but you live inside of me. And when I'm not aware of that, 
I'm not able to tap into the interior transforming power. So I am going to set my heart not to try to do better or be better or think better or act better. I'm going to set my heart to meditating more on what's already in me because you, your character, your nature has already come to dwell inside of me. I am going to agree with the Apostle Paul that my physical body is a temple for your spirit to unite with my spirit. You've made me alive. Now I'm asking you through an ever-increasing awareness that you are living in me to begin to manifest your nature through me. To overwhelm what might be a carnal response by the power of your indwelling spirit. So the next time I respond to that, it will be out of the nature and character of Jesus. Just keep your head bowed for your eyes closed just for a minute. If you struggle with a habit that, that really bothers you every time you give in to it, it's just, it's just something that you don't want to have clinging on to your life. Now's a moment where in rest... We need to ask the Holy Spirit to set us free from that. No big deal outwardly, but a miraculous inward change. Because His love, His joy, His peace, His patience, His kindness, His goodness. And the last one on that list is self-control, which seems to be a conundrum that your ability to control yourself will not come from you. It will come from the power of the Spirit who is living in you right now. So Father, we ask you, as our interior eyes are on you, the eyes of our mind are on you, we're focused on you, we're asking you to renew our mind in the very area where that temptation seems to trip me up on a regular basis and then I feel so bad about it but Lord I can now run to you whose heart is love toward me I can become more aware that the power to say no to that temptation to that thing that's weighing me down or tripping me up there's a power within me to say no to that would you renew my mind so I begin more and more to believe that you tell the truth. That you live in me by your spirit. That you live in me by your spirit. That you are living in me by your spirit. And I'm asking you, Lord, for each one of us sitting in here today, that over the next few days, there would be a noticeable, measurable, and specific change in one area of our life that has been troubling us. Where you, you alone, by your power, not by any of ours, set us free from a way we've been thinking. We act the way we act because we think the way we think. Renew our minds. Renew our minds. I want you to look up at me here just for a minute.
because I'm going to guess that none of us here have been raised as Orthodox Jews, we really can't appreciate what must have started to bubble up in the minds of those men when Jesus said, the Father is going to send the Helper and he who has been with you and your ancestors is now going to be in you. I can only imagine that because we know historically that from their earliest age they were forced to memorize Moses and the prophets. That what leapt to their minds were things like this. Jeremiah 31. Behold the days are coming declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Not like the old covenant which they continually broke. But this covenant that I will make with them is that I will put my law within them. And on their heart I will write it. I can only imagine that their minds must have leapt to Ezekiel 36. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from you and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. And that will cause you to walk in my ways. I want to testify to you that the ability to say no to sin comes from a growing awareness of who's living in you. It does not come by making bigger promises to God. It comes by humbly saying to God, if you don't transform me, it's all downhill from here. I cannot do this. But I believe you tell the truth. I believe you tell the truth. I tell you, one of the most common prayers in my life for the last 20 years about any situation, whether it's been temptation or whether it's been need in my ministry or whatever it might be, my most common prayer is, I believe you tell the truth. I believe you tell the truth. I believe you tell the truth. You said that you would provide for my needs. You didn't tell me when, where, or how. That's up to you. You're the sovereign God. But I believe you tell the truth. You said I would have the ability in Titus 2.11 to say no to ungodliness. That I would have that ability. I believe you tell the truth. I believe you tell the truth. I would like for you to go out of here today saying to yourself, He is in me. And I am on the road to change and transformation, not by my promises. Your promises to God will hold you back. I guarantee it. But looking at his promises of transformation and saying, I believe you tell the truth. I believe you tell the truth. I believe you tell the truth. And I just want you to know that when you share this with somebody, whether they're an American, they've heard about church all their lives, or they're in some foreign country where they've never, ever heard it before, the good news is he has come to live in you and to set you free, to change you from the inside out through no effort of your own, but your believing he tells the truth.